Before I begin the episode, I'm going to do my little pitch. I'd like to thank all of you who have supported me this past year on Patreon. You enable me to be able to continue to bring the podcast to you. For anyone who is interested in supporting my work, please go to patreon.com countermelody, where you can make a monthly or yearly pledge and thereby gain access to all of my bonus material. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, I also have to say how saddened I was this week to read of the death of Bell Hooks, who was such an important writer and scholar, a trailblazer in the discussion of racism, feminism, and even love and family, who transformed her theoretical positions into action and into a guide for a way to live a life. I've been spending the past two days reacquainting myself with her legacy, and I found two quotes that I just really want to share with you. The first one is from her book, All About Love, New Visions. One of the best guides to how to be self-loving is to give ourselves the love we are often dreaming about receiving from others. There was a time when I felt lousy about my over 40 body, saw myself as too fat, too this, or too that. Yet I fantasized about finding a lover who would give me the gift of being loved as I am. It is silly, isn't it, that I would dream of someone else offering to me the acceptance and affirmation I was withholding from myself. This was a moment when the maxim, you can never love anybody if you are unable to love yourself, made clear sense. And I add, do not expect to receive the love from someone else you do not give yourself. And from a 2017 interview with her, she's speaking here about community and family. I think that societies begin with our small units of community, which are family, whether bio or chosen. I am often amazed when I meet people that I see have been raised in loving families because they're so different and they live in the world differently. I don't agree that every family is dysfunctional. I think we don't want to admit that when people are loving, it's a different world. It's an amazing world. It's a world of peace. It's not that they don't have pain, but they know how to handle their pain in a way that's not self-negating. And so I think, in so much as we begin to look again at the family and challenging and changing patriarchy within family systems, irrespective of what those families are, there's hope for love. I have nothing to add except rest in power. Bell Hooks. Welcome to Counter Melody, the podcast on great singers and great singing. As always, I am your host, Daniel Gundlach. No preaching here, no lecturing, well, maybe just a tiny bit of each. But the primary spotlight will always be on the singers that enrich and enhance our lives, no matter what is going on in the world around us. Thanks for joining me.
And now, this week's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm starting off each episode in December with a special recording of a holiday favorite. Of course, last week was my holiday episode, so we heard Christmas music over the course of the entire episode. One singer that we heard speaking but not singing was the great Lotte Lehmann, who we heard reading one of Rilke's poems from his Marienleben cycle. At that point, she was 70 years old. What we're about to hear is a recording of the German Christmas favorite, O du Fröhliche, from Lotte Lehmann's Prime in 1925. This is one of my two or three favorite Christmas recordings of all time. As always with Lotte Lehmann, it's how she makes the words come to life that make this such an exceptional performance. Today's subject is the exceptional American soprano Bethany Beardsley, who on Christmas Day will celebrate her 96th birthday. Let's begin today's celebration with two of her earliest recordings, these from the year 1951, two contrasting songs by Alban Berg set to the same text by Theodor Storm, Schließe mir die Augen beide. The first version is from the year 1900 and is written in the full-blown romantic style of Berg's earliest compositions. In 1925, Alban Berg did a setting of the same poem, this one using the 12-tone technique. Bethany Beardsley gave the world premiere performance of both of these works in 1950, while she was still a student at the Juilliard School. In this performance, as in the first recording that we heard, Bethany Beardsley is accompanied 
by Jacques-Louis Monod. Before I begin a biographical sketch of Bethany Beardsley, I want to play you a contrasting recording of hers from more than 30 years later. This is of the Robert Schumann song Aus den östlichen Rosen from his Myrten cycle. Here, in this 1984 recording, Bethany Beardsley is accompanied by the pianist Lois Shapiro. What I find exceptional in this late recording is that the fresh, beautiful timbre that we hear in her earliest recordings remains present after more than three decades of singing a wide range of music, including, most prominently, the most challenging vocal repertoire ever written for a soprano. Certainly she's most famous for her performances of mid-20th century contemporary work, which we will be featuring and discussing over the course of this episode. But the vividness of expression and the integrity of the musical response is just as impressive as the technical aplomb with which she dashes off whatever it is that she sings.
Bethany Beardsley was born in Lansing, Michigan on Christmas Day, 1925, to an upper-middle-class family, though, like so many others, suffered gravely at the onset of the Depression. Her father eventually regained his financial footing, and the family was raised in relative comfort for those years. While she was in high school, young Bethany took part in some productions of musical plays at the school and suddenly found herself the object of admiration and attention. World War II was already in full swing as she finished her high school years, and in the fall of 1942, she entered Michigan State University. She studied voice there with a bass baritone with whom she did not particularly connect, but she received enough encouragement from him that she decided to become a music major. In preparing for today's episode, I had the pleasure of reading Bethany Beardsley's 2017 autobiography entitled I Sang the Unsingable, My Life in 20th Century Music. In her autobiography, she remembers hearing Lotte Lehmann perform Winterreise. After her first teacher retired, she began to study with a light tenor named Herbert Swanson, who had studied under Bernardo de Muro, who taught a bel canto technique. She credits Herbert Swanson with instilling a love of singing and of art song in her in particular. Encouraged by her mother's sister, she decided to apply to Juilliard for graduate school. And to her surprise and delight, she was offered a scholarship there. She recounts singing as a member of the Robert Shaw Chorale in Arturo Toscanini's televised performances of Aida and the Verdi Requiem. While she was still a student at Juilliard, she met the composer Ben Weber, who chose her to sing one of his new pieces, Concert Aria After Solomon, which she then proceeded to record in 1950. Here is a short excerpt from that recording. Everyone, oh, 
One of the audience members at the premiere of Ben Weber's work was a young Frenchman named Jacques Monod, a composer, pianist, and conductor, who was a protege of René Leibovitz, who in turn was a disciple of Anton Webern. Jacques Monod and René Leibovitz were instrumental in the creation of the record label Dial Records, which became renowned for both its jazz recordings and for its recordings of contemporary classical music. Those two Alban Berg songs that we heard were early releases on Dial Records. Another album contained works by Anton Webern, including his four Opus 12 songs, of which we're going to hear the third, to a text by August Strindberg. The song is called Schienmias, Als ich sah die Sonne, it seemed to me as if I saw the sun. Bethany Beardsley and Jacques Monod began a romance and were eventually married for a number of years. According to her autobiography, he had an enormous influence on her in that he brought an entire world of new music to her attention with which she had been previously unacquainted. Some of the most striking passages in her book describe how she would go about learning this most difficult repertoire. She describes how, with a composer like Webern, that one has to find the tonal center of the music. I'm going to just read a few brief sentences from the book. This ability to make tonal sense of any musical phrase in a new work was something I found intuitively. If I couldn't figure out the tonal sense of what I was singing, it just wouldn't feel like music. Finding that tonal sense involves hearing how pitch raises and lowers itself in the context of the music. Relative pitch forces you to hear that way. I can hear how pitches lean into one another or away from each other. With Webern's wide intervallic lines, it was particularly hard to hear because the relationships between the wide intervals are not so apparent. But if you reduced them to a small cluster, you would find that many of them were just chromatic half-steps. In the final analysis, I tonalized everything I sang in one way or another, and once I'd done that, I could sing any composer's work. All music is tonal, 
And that conviction became an invaluable component to my ability in the years to come to learn and interpret the challenging music I would build my career on. She also describes how, not being a good pianist herself, she taught herself to learn everything away from the piano. Through Ben Weber, she also became acquainted with the composer Milton Babbitt, with whom she formed a long-standing artistic partnership. As much as one can say that Bethany Beardsley was the muse to a wide range of composers during this period, it is surely through her association with Milton Babbitt that some of the most exceptional work was created for her. He composed four very important vocal works for her, and we will hear excerpts of all of those today. The first of these was a song cycle that he wrote for Bethany Beardsley and her then-husband Jacques Monod. The song cycle is called Du, and it's based on the texts of the German expressionist poet August Stramm. As I was reading about August Stramm this week, I found that he also wrote that peculiar stage drama Sancta Susanna, which formed the basis of a one-act opera of the same title by Paul Hindemith, a fascinating and distinctly carnal work that is a mini-masterpiece of expressionist opera. The subject of August Stramm's collection of poems entitled Du, published in 1914, the year before his death on the battlefield, refers not just to the beloved, but to humanity and even to God. Now let's just listen to two very short poems from that Du song cycle. In this 1961 recording, Bethany Beardsley is accompanied by the composer and pianist Robert Helps, who became one of her primary collaborators at the height of her career. Du sagst Gott 
Through her performances in the New York area, Bethany Beardsley quickly established herself as a singer who could indeed sing virtually anything. By her own count, in the early years of her career, she created 59 new pieces of music. What's truly exceptional about her performances of this repertoire is that she makes it sound like real music. You really hear the connection of one note to the next, and you're going to hear that throughout this entire episode, no matter what kind of music it is that she's singing. Now, in the late 50s, she began making some recordings for Columbia Records that were connected with these early premieres that she had been doing, and I'm going to play two things for you. First is from a recording conducted by Igor Stravinsky of his choral work called Traini. I always called it Thraini, but I believe the Latin pronunciation would be Traini. It's based on the Lamentations of Jeremiah, and it's a very austere work in Stravinsky's late serial style. The premiere of the work in Europe had not at all been successful, and so a lot rode on the U.S. premiere and subsequent recording. As I say, it's a rather thorny work and not really all that accessible, but here is a short excerpt from it in which we hear Bethany Beardsley in duet with the contralto Beatrice Krebs, Igor Stravinsky leads the Columbia Symphony, and the Scola Cantorum in this 1959 recording. previous year, Bethany Beardsley had also sung the U.S. premiere of a work by Ernst Krenick called Sestina. This is a work that's even more rigorously serialized than Stravinsky's Trainee. Krenick was inspired by the medieval form of poetry called the Sestina, in which the poetic lines are arranged in a similarly rigid fashion as is the music itself. She herself describes in the book 
the difficulty of learning this piece and how it was not one of her favorite undertakings. And yet, again, you hear how her freedom and her ease in presenting the music gives it a much more accessible and pleasing profile. The composer himself leads the instrumental ensemble here. We heard a brief excerpt from the song cycle Du that Milton Babbitt had written for Bethany Beardsley and Jacques Monod. The next significant vocal work that Babbitt composed for Bethany Beardsley was his Vision and Prayer, set to a text by Dylan Thomas. This is an example of what at the time was the cutting edge of avant-garde classical music, that is, music performed live with synthesized pre-recorded sound, one manifestation of what is now called electronic music. I just want to take a moment here to note another singer that I have featured on the podcast who was equally, but in a very different way, a vocal pioneer, and that is Kathy Barbarian. She is a much more outwardly theatrical performer, though she performed in only one staged quasi-opera, that is, Silvano Busotti's Le Passion Selon Sade. She was much more an arbiter of what she referred to as la nuova vocalità, which really was more extended vocal techniques than what 
Bethany Beardsley does. I refer my listeners back to those two episodes that I did earlier this year on Kathy Barbarian as a very interesting way of comparing and contrasting these two extraordinary avant-garde divas. But let's get back to vision and prayer and the complicated process of the collaborative creation of that piece. Bethany Beardsley writes, Vision and prayer was an important piece for both of us, that is, her and Milton Babbitt. With it, we were truly venturing blindly into new territory, a new landscape of performance, preparation, interpretation. There was nothing to do but proceed boldly. Milton wrote a score from me, which I had a period of time to prepare before he sent the tape that would be my synthesized accompaniment. She describes how coordinating with that pre-recorded synthesized sound was an enormous challenge for her. On almost every occasion, Bethany Beardsley would perform music from memory, and yet at the premiere of Vision and Prayer in 1961, she did use a score, one of the very rare occasions on which she did so. Here is an excerpt, not from the premiere, which you can also find on YouTube and which is pretty fascinating, but rather from a 1971 recording. Oh, let him scald me and drown me in his 
this world's room. His lightning answers my cry. My voice burns in his hand. Now I am lost in the blinding one. The sun roars at the prayer's end. Much to my delight, I found that Bethany Beardsley also did some work with the early music group led by Noah Greenberg, known as the New York Pro Musica. She sang for a number of years with them and participated in several recordings with them. Here are excerpts of two of those albums. The first of these is from an album of Elizabethan airs and dances, a lute song by John Dowland called Lady, If You So Spite Me. In this 1959 recording, Bethany Beardsley is accompanied by the harpsichordist Paul Maynard. This is from an album of Spanish music of the Renaissance, an anonymous viancico called Ay de mi Quentera Agena. There are two singers that one hears in the refrain with her. Those are the tenor Robert White and the baritone Gordon Myers. Thank you. 
Concurrently with her work with New York Pro Musica, Bethany Beardsley was making one of the most important recordings of her career that was with Robert Kraft, Igor Stravinsky's assistant of music by Alban Berg. This was the first commercial recording of his Altenberg Lieder, and this is a recording of the second one of those poems, Saß du nach dem Gewitterregen den Wald. The following year, Bethany Beardsley reunited with Robert Kraft to record Berg's concert aria Der Wein. The texts by Charles Baudelaire are translated into German by Stefan George, whom we will be encountering in his capacity as poet in the next excerpt. The concert aria divides into three sections, and this is the short central section, Der Wein der Liebenden, The Wine of Lovers. It was Bethany Beardsley who first showed the world that this music of the Second Viennese School was capable of being sung with line, with beauty of tone, with expression, with intensity, with dedication. By giving performances such as these, she placed these works within a post-romantic context. 
Of course, this is easier to achieve in the work of Berg than it is of either Webern or Schoenberg. But as we are about to hear, she extended that same generosity of line and spirit to the music of Schoenberg. In 1962, she and Robert Helps, the pianist whom we heard accompanying her in the Milton Babbitt Du Cycle, made a recording of Schoenberg's cycle, Das Buch der Hängenden Gärten. These are based on original poems by Stefan George. Schoenberg set 15 of George's poems to form the basis of this song cycle which is one of his earliest explorations into a tonality. Stefan George was a German symbolist poet who had a direct personal connection with his French counterparts Baudelaire and Mallarmé. Stefan George is a troubling figure as he was associated with German nationalism, and though he did not support Hitler At the time of his death in 1933, he was very much associated with the ascendancy of the Third Reich. So that needs to be said. He was gay, and most of his poetry is in fact addressed directly to other males. The one exception is these poems of the Book of the Hanging Gardens, which are highly erotic and especially in a performance such as they receive here, enormously sensuous. This recording was made in 1962 and yet has not been re-released since then. I'm going to play you four excerpts from that recording. These are the second song, Hein in diesen Paradiesen, the fourth song, Da meine Lippen reglos sind, the eighth song, Wenn ich heut nicht deinen Leib berühre, and the thirteenth song, Du lehnest wieder eine Silberweide. These are written for a voice balanced on the lower end of the female vocal spectrum. And yet, you hear how Bethany Beardsley draws on a deep connection to that lower range and uses that to bring out the sensuous elements of the poetry and the music. Ein in diesen Paradiesen wechselt ab mit Blütenwiesen
Another work of Schoenberg's in which Bethany Beardsley made an even more notable and standard setting contribution was in Schoenberg's Opus 21, Pierrot Lunaire. This piece is scored for five instrumentalists and voice, but as many of you who are in the know know, this is not simply a singing voice. It is notated in a method that Schoenberg devised called Sprechstimme, song speech. And there is a long preface to the published score of Pierre Lunaire in which he discusses what exactly he intends the performer to attempt and attain in the notation of these pitches. When Bethany Beardsley first learned and performed the piece in 1955, she was still married to Jacques Monod, who, when they worked on the piece together, insisted that she learn every single pitch as notated. There is a strange recording by Pierre Boulez where the singer actually sings all of the pitches. Believe me, it doesn't work. There are a number of singers who have made an indelible mark in this music, and Bethany Beardsley was the first one to make such an impact, and that for posterity in her 1962 recording with Robert Kraft. She achieves an eerie sense of the poetry inherent in these strange pieces. It was one of the great joys of my performing life to actually get a chance to do these pieces, and I speak of them from a position of great love for this music, and also 
a good deal of familiarity. During the time that I was preparing this piece, I found myself remarking upon all of the influences of Mahler on this music. And yet, the juxtaposition of this Mahlerian musical language with the luridness of the poetry and the grotesqueness of the vocal expression makes this piece unique in the history of music. There has never been, and there never will be, another piece like this one. Its influence can simply not be overstated, nor can the importance of Bethany Beardsley's recording be overstated either. I'm going to play you right now two songs which show the kind of impact she had in this cycle. The first is Der Kranke Mund, which is scored only for voice and flute, and in this recording the flute is played by Murray Panitz. There is this otherworldly suspension of sound in which the flute and the voice interweave one amongst the other. It's an extraordinary moment in music history and in this performance in recorded history. Another movement from the Pierrot that I'm going to play for you right now is called Parodie. It is written in canon, where the voice is one of the voices in the canon. And so, a certain kind of precision is demanded even when one is not actually singing 
the pitches. This movement is testament to the precision and pinpoint accuracy and the resulting freedom of expression that Bethany Beardsley brings to this music. We have already seen how much Bethany Beardsley's active repertoire reflects the range of her musical accomplishment. We've already heard recordings of Bethany Beardsley when she was a member of the New York Pro Musica, but she also excelled in Baroque music. She was a noted interpreter of Bach and sang Cantata 51 on numerous occasions including under Charles Münch and the Boston Symphony. She also ventured into the classical repertoire. In 1966, Bethany Beardsley made her first recording of non-20th century repertoire. The following is an excerpt from her album entitled An 18th Century Vocal Recital, in which she sings music of Haydn and Pergolesi. We are going to hear an excerpt from an aria from Pergolesi's opera, Adriano in Siria, entitled Lieto Così Talvolta, the entrapped nightingale hears from her prison the song of her faithful mate and responds to his song of love unhappily while longing for freedom. We hear James Boll leading the Musica Viva Ensemble and featuring Basil Reeve on oboe obbligato.
It's interesting that the nightingale comes up numerous times across the wide spectrum of Bethany Beardsley's repertoire. The Pergolesi piece that we just heard references the nightingale. This next piece, Milton Babbitt's Philomel, is certainly the most famous of her nightingale pieces, but she also premiered work by Ernst Krenick and Edward Cohn that referenced the nightingale as well. Philomel is a young woman who has been raped by her brother-in-law. He, to prevent her from telling about what he has done, has cut out her tongue. In the end, she and her sister exact their revenge, and she turns into a nightingale, her voice finally freed. This piece was commissioned by the Ford Foundation for Bethany Beardsley to be composed by Milton Babbitt to a poem written by John Hollander. The title page of the score designates that the piece is for soprano, recorded soprano, and synthesized sound. So whenever another soprano performs this piece, she is performing it with the pre-recorded voice of Bethany Beardsley. This is one of Milton Babbitt's most stunningly beautiful pieces, and Bethany Beardsley got to spread her wings, so to speak, no pun intended, and allow her performing persona to fly free. This is a portion of the third part of the extended piece. This section begins with the words, pressed into one fell moment. Pressed into one fell moment, my ghastly transformation died like a fading scream. The ravisher and the chaste turned to love at last. The voice tearing shatter becomes the time. Voices of the night that the God has scattered. Through 
I'm now going to offer you a few very brief examples that only begin to touch upon the wide range of repertoire that was created for and premiered by Bethany Beardsley. First is a 1970 recording of another extended piece for voice and chamber ensemble, this one by the composer Fred Lerdahl using texts of James Joyce from Finnegan's Wake. The work is called Wake, and we're going to hear a short section beginning, She was a thin, pale, soft, shy. David Epstein leads the Boston Symphony Chamber Players.
Robert Helps was, as I have mentioned, a frequent pianistic and musical partner of Bethany Beardsley's. He also wrote a number of significant works for her, two of them on the poetry of James Purdy. I strongly encourage you all to look up the piece for soprano and orchestra called Gossamer Noons. What we're going to hear today is the final song from a cycle for piano and voice, called The Running Sun. And there is so much more than could be said, but we must not say we have not heard. And there is so much more than could be said, but we must not say we have not heard. In 1956, a year after divorcing Jacques Monod, Bethany Beardsley married Godfrey Wynnum, who was a student of Milton Babbitt's. He was a music theorist and a composer who was particularly interested in electronic music, but also composed some beautiful vocal works for his wife. We're going to hear an excerpt from the song cycle To Prove My Love, which uses as its texts sonnets by William Shakespeare. These songs were composed between 1957 and 1960 and were premiered by Bethany Beardsley in 1960. The performance we're hearing today is from a live recital given in 1974 in Princeton. Bethany Beardsley is accompanied once again by Robert Helps.
Godfrey Wynnum and Bethany Beardsley were happily married for 18 years and had two sons. In 1974, Godfrey Wynnum was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. He died on April 23, 1975, at the age of 40. As Bethany Beardsley writes in her book, I have never really recovered from Godfrey's death. In her deep mourning, Bethany Beardsley took a number of years off from performing, while at the same time combing through her late husband's papers and working to secure his musical legacy. Eventually, she did return to performing as a gift of love to Bethany Beardsley and in memory of her beloved husband, Milton Babbitt, wrote yet another extraordinary vocal piece for her, entitled A Solo Requiem, for voice and two pianos. For voice and two pianos, called A Solo Requiem. This piece sets poems by Shakespeare, Gerard Manley Hopkins, George Meredith, August Stramm, and John Dryden. I'm going to play for you one of the emotional high points of this piece. It's called No Worst There Is None, and this is set to a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Bethany Beardsley premiered the work in 1979 and recorded it the following year. She's accompanied by the pianists Cheryl Seltzer and Joel Sachs. Thank you. 
Powell is another composer whose work Bethany Beardsley has championed and premiered over the course of many years. Mel Powell has an interesting pedigree in that he was the pianist for Benny Goodman's band before turning to more avant-garde pursuits. In 1980, he composed a series of pieces for Bethany Beardsley that he grouped together under the title Little Companion Pieces. They were intended to be performed as companions to Schoenberg's String Quartet No. 2, which uses a soprano solo in its final two movements. This is another piece in which Bethany Beardsley made an extraordinary mark and left a lasting legacy in a recording made in 1980 with the Sequoia String Quartet. The companion piece on that recording is this group of little companion pieces by Mel Powell. I'm going to play the fourth one for you. It's based on a text of Charles Baudelaire, whose work we also heard in translation in Alban Berg's Der Weim. This time, the text is translated into English by Roy Campbell. This is a portion of the fourth of the little companion pieces called Lines from Baudelaire's Meditation. I was delighted to read in Bethany Beardsley's autobiography that as a young girl in high school, she had imagined a future for herself as the next Mary Martin. That didn't happen, but she did retain a great love for traditional art song, which was an integral part of her active repertoire over the course of her entire career. And finally, in the last years of her career, it was also a repertoire that she began to record. I have a few delicious examples of that type of repertoire with which to close off today's episode. From a recording project with Robert Helps, that was done in 1977. Here is a performance of Aaron Copland, a composer with whom Bethany Beardsley is not at all associated, really. This is his 1927 song entitled simply Song, set 
to a text by E.E. E. Cummings. Bethany Beardsley's recorded legacy was enormously expanded by a series of art song recordings that she made, a French and German repertoire. The voice is no longer in the first flush of youth, but in a way, it doesn't even really matter. There are occasional insecurities, yet the tone remains supple and plangent, and we hear the same virtues that she brought to the quote-unquote unsingable repertoire that she brings to this eminently singable material. From a 1989 recording that she did of French Melodie, here is the third of Debussy's Ariettes Oubliées, set to texts of Paul Verlaine. This is L'Ombre des Arbres, and once again, Bethany Beardsley is accompanied by Robert Helps.
Nearing the end of her performing career, Bethany Beardsley recorded a series of leader recordings, one each of Schubert, Schumann, and Brahms. These were originally released on her own label, Pierrot Records. Much of this material was reissued in 2018 on Bridge Records. From her Brahms recording, we hear Bethany Beardsley and Richard Good in a performance of the song Wir Wandelten. The bells described in this rather tacky lyric evoke in a wonderful way the still, shimmering, silvery quality of Bethany Beardsley's voice. so happy that I was able to bring this singer to you today in anticipation of her upcoming birthday on Christmas Day. I hope that you have been as delighted as I have been by the extraordinary musical acuity, interpretive depth, vocal refinement, and deep expressiveness of Bethany Beardsley. I'm going to close with the final of the Pierrot Lunaire songs. O alter Duft, O ancient scent of days gone by, 
once more intoxicate my senses. All my ill humor is dispelled, and from my sun-encircled window I view afresh the world filled with love, and I dream beyond the blissful distance. O ancient scent of days gone by. Happy birthday, Bethany Beardsley. O aller Duft aus Märchenzeit, berauschest wieder meine Sinne. Ein Nerich Herr von Schelmerein durchschwirrt die leichte Luft. Ein glückhaft Wunsch macht mich froh nach Freuden, die ich lang verracht. O alter Duft aus Märchenzeit, Meinen Unmut gebe ich frei. Aus meinen sonnenumrunden Fenstern schaue ich frei die liebe Welt und träume hinaus My dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.